10 million fireflies. Excuse me, assassination is just a nice word for first degree murder. You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Oh my. Broadcasting live, to tape, across the nation and the world, from the Lorena Bobbitt Theater, in the city that always sleeps and still looks like hell in the morning, beautiful North Seattle. It's the podcast for a world gone mad. This is The Society Show. And now, your host, a man who would have died storming the Bastille, Christian Patterson. I am wounded! Hello, hello, and welcome to the Society Show. Do you believe in society's lies? My name is Christian. You are now listening to, like I said, the Society Show. Welcome, welcome. Hello there. It is Thursday, December 22nd, 2022. The second to last show of 2022. Welcome, welcome. And this is also the last show before Christmas, but I uh, don't really have Christmas plans for you. You know, last year I was doing more holiday episodes and those are fun, but at the same time I don't always have a lot to say about the holidays. So I'll start with this happy... Christmas, Merry Christmas to those who celebrate it. It's coming up soon. You can maybe put this podcast on with your family on Christmas morn when you're unwrapping presents. Um, if you celebrate Hanukkah, I believe that may have passed by now. I, I'm not sure. Let me let me check that actually. Oh nope, we're right in the middle of Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah, everyone! Woo! Hooray! And um. Happy, um, you know, happy Kwanzaa, happy Honda days, and all of that to you. So, before we get into it, like, the big main story of this episode is I'm going to talk a lot about what the ideology of the ultra-rich oligarch class is. And I think there's a lot to be said about it, and I really think that they are... The oligarch class, like I guess the ones that come to mind, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, they're the more like ideologically motivated ones. The material conditions of the world, especially the United States, are changing where the oligarchs have more and more power. And consequently, they are forming an ideology that I believe, I mean, that exists to really bolster their new standing in the material order. And I'm going to talk a lot more about that, but just so you know. That's what, that's what the main event's going to be, but we're going to get there a little slowly. The first thing I want to talk about is um, TV comedy, actually. I have, so I've started re-watching South Park, and I'm just going to say a little bit about that. And I also have a little bit to say about Pokemon, so that's kind of... The three main topics, a little on South Park, a little on Pokemon, and a a lot on the ideology of the oligarchs. But before we get to that, I would like to, um, you know, I haven't done this the last few episodes and I want to get back in the habit of it. This show isn't just me, Christian Patterson. This show is also... DJ Skidoo. I come in peace. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I say whoever threw that paper, your mom's a hoe. In the Society Show soundboard band. Featuring organist Roy Dickerson. Hello, 
And of course, we have an intern named Napoleon. Actually, it's pretty crazy. Full name Napoleon Hitler. I don't think he's related to Hitler, but he's an annoying little twerp, and I actually can't stand him. So hopefully, he doesn't interject. You know what really started pissing me off is a few episodes ago I was talking about Elon Musk, and he comes in all angry, like Elon Musk is cool. So hopefully, he doesn't butt in for our main event. And before we get all into that, that's just the preview, the little sneak peek. But um, we actually have a third clip, a a bit from the third episode of the brand new CBS spinoff of Young Sheldon, co-produced by The Society Show. It is called Pubescent Sheldon. So we're going to play a preview of that and uh, then get on with the show. Pubescent Sheldon, Episode 3, Visiting Grandpa Richard Armitage at his house. Well, hello there, Papa. It's me, your favorite daughter. I'm about to bring in your favorite grandson, too. Yes, please bring in my favorite grandson. I want him to say funny, precocious things to me. Well, here he is. Hi, Papa. What the hell is this? This ain't my grandson. It's me, Papa. I swear. Young Sheldon. My young Sheldon, you have a voice like an angel. Who is this imposter? Oh, it's still just me, little young Sheldon. Uh, okay, I- I'll try to get used to you, young Sheldon, but I think you're turning into pubescent Sheldon. Grandpa, I was listening to the Society Show podcast. And they said you revealed a CIA lady's name, Grandpa. Yeah, well, I thought people had forgot about that one, but yep, it's true, my boy. And I've I've done my due diligence. I've paid for my crimes. Does that mean you went to prison, Grandpa? No, my boy, just. I just kind of exited public life quietly and got really rich instead. Oh, gee, Papa. Yeah, how do you think you got on that young Sheldon show? I paid him off. You got paid off in that Valerie Plain money. Now, in terms of South Park, I will say it is, I'm, I'm watching the show from the beginning, and I've seen most of the first 10 or 15 seasons when I was younger, um, but I haven't really seen beyond that, so I'm curious to see where the show goes in the future. I know there's the stuff like the PC principle, and I don't know. Stuff like that. Um, I'm kind of under the impression it gets... Well, I know that it gets less potty humory once it gets into like the fourth, fifth, sixth season. Um, but I guess I want to comment on this show because, you know, it, it's hard to understate, especially for my young listeners, how controversial it was. And I mean, it's been controversial up until recently. It's not like. It's not like it was exclusively exclusively in 1998, 1999. It's not like that's the only time that South Park was controversial. It was basically always... It, it, like, up until now, it's been controversial. Um, and I guess the types of controversies... Con- well, I keep saying controversies. I don't know why... I guess the controversies back then were more just crude related, like in like Terrence and Phillips style. Like, how can you let our kids watch this swearing potty humor? But um, 
I guess what I really wanted to talk about, about the controversial elements, is that I don't think a TV show could pull off that level of controversy now. And a big part of it is a lot of the controversy was not non-political, but it was kind of like sub-political. And that is actually how most people engage with politics back then. So, like, you might be like, oh, there's the liberals on one side screaming about abortion and environmentalism and gay marriage and blah, blah, blah. And then you have these people on the other side screaming about this and that. Blah. And that made sense back then because that was that was just more how politics was perceived the way politics exists now is uh, more inching closer to power politics where it's like i have an ideology i just need a powerful person or social movement to be the napoleon the vladimir lenin the um whatever the conqueror the the one to conquer and establish the ideological order i have in mind that's not at all how politics were back then like not even a little bit if you had this sort of ideological vision and wanted a napoleonic figure to bring it in you were just like a kook you were even more idealistic than you would be now because at least now we see the orders collapsing and something will need to take its place but back then you would just be like a major kook and i think a really good way a really good thing to compare south park against weirdly enough is alex jones not to be like oh south park is in any way like alex jones like it's political positions that it's that um south park is more didactic about they aren't approaching alex jones levels um, at all. They're more centrist libertarian. But that is actually kind of how Alex Jones started. He was always super right wing. He was always a John Bircher. But during the Iraq war, he had a lot more credibility in attacking the Bush administration because he was anti-neocon. Of course, he'd say, like, the neocons are liberals who took over the Republican Party and they're just as bad as liberals. So it's still all framed as Democrats bad, Republicans bad based on their proximity to Democrats, basically. So it wasn't a particularly centrist, like South Park, it wasn't exactly centrist. It might lean right wing a little bit, but it was in no way as politically invigorated as most things in our society are now. And, you know, maybe I'll have more insight into this situation once I get further in watching South Park, see the newer episodes. But this has really got me thinking, what could possibly be put on TV that could be as controversial as South Park? And I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that nothing can be controversial quite in the same way as South Park anymore. Because it would either need to be like this far right uh, neo-fascist propaganda and then half the country would be like, what the hell is this shit? Or vice versa. It would have to be some like radical left wing cartoon and half the country would be like, literally, how dare you? So I'm just like, how could you make something that is controversial but across political lines because back then it was more like the immature and young and rebellious people watch South Park and the straight-laced functioning members of society thought South Park was rotting people's brains that was basically the dichotomy then and we don't have those same divisions in our modern society so stay tuned once I watch some more South Park and uh, I might have more thoughts they took our job I like the 
So, real quick, before we get into the main event, I do want to talk about the new Pokemon games. I touched on them a little bit last episode, but I want to give my thoughts because, well, first I'll say this. Another thing going on in Pokemon Media right now is they are actually writing Ash and Pikachu out of the Pokemon show after 25 years, and I can't say I'm particularly opposed to this, honestly. Like, a lot of the people who seem upset on it, or upset about it on social media, are people who probably never watch the show anymore, and I'm also someone who, you know, maybe occasionally I'll watch an episode or so, but, like, it is a kid's show. Then again, I play the games, and those are kids' games, so what do I know? I I think the people who are upset about it, they... They're just thinking about their childhood. They're very nostalgic for Ash. And I don't know if kids these days really have the same nostalgia for Ash. Like, because they cycle through the side characters constantly on the show. Ash is the only constant. And and Pikachu. And so I think kids might have a a feeling like, well, the characters are always changing. The way they always change, like, every series of power rangers why is there this one guy and this one pokemon who are constant like i think people who grew up with pokemon at its origins don't fully understand how it's perceived to kids who started caring about it for in like the sixth generation the seventh generation so yeah i guess i think it's a good thing they're getting rid of ash from the cartoon But in terms of the games, I kind of feel like, you know, the new game Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, I'm enjoying it. I'm still playing it. Yes, it's a buggy mess, but uh, it's nothing that really gets in the way of my enjoyment. And also, you know, Pokemon games have always been buggy. Like, my first Pokemon game was Pokemon Blue. And, you know, what they always say about that game is that it was, like, basically held together with chewing gum and and paper clips. Like, it is, there are so many ways the game could break, and there's actually so many ways that the game doesn't work right that you don't even know because it has to do with, like, the numbers being crunched in the background. But, like, total algorithms and shit are just, like, messed up. Um, So, you know, you... If you like Pokemon, you know what you're in for. It will probably be at least a little buggy or underwhelming in some way, just to be honest. But what Pokemon needs to do is figure out their identity. Because this new game, they're kind of in between like an open world system and a, with some of the mechanics of a linear system. And they just don't mesh very well. I don't think Game Freak is... As experience making open world games, and it shows, because the open world areas of this game, yes, they're a lot more remarkable than the ones in Pokemon Sword and Shield. The ones in Sword and Shield were just big open planes, and it wasn't that fun. This has a little more variety, but it's still, you know, the comparison I used last episode Elden Ring, there's landmarks everywhere. Like, you know your way around the map based on the landmarks and all of that. In Pokemon, it's really easy to get lost because there aren't that many landmarks. And I guess I just want them to go more in the direction they're currently going. But I guess what I really want is, honestly, if Game Freak just remade... 2D Pokemon games, and not remakes, but just, like, made a new, like, same graphics as, like, Pokemon Black and White. Just do a different zone with that format over and over and over and over. I would buy a new one every year, Um, and I'm probably in the minority of that, and I know that Pokemon's not going back to that. Maybe they'll do it when they do remakes, but uh, like they kind of did for Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. But 
Um, that's the most I'll say about Pokemon now. I don't want to bore anyone who doesn't care about it. Pokemon, go to the polls. The human sacrificed himself to save the Pokemon. And so let's get ready for our main event segment. Tonight, we are going to witness the most anticipated match in the history a professional wrestling for the heavyweight championship of the world. This is what I'm going to spend the rest of the episode talking about. And it revolves around, like I said at the beginning, what exactly is the ideology of our oligarchs and where does it come from? And before I get into that, I would just like to announce that at the end of the show, we will be having, we had another submitted uh, tape from a fan of the show. Um, he, we don't know his name. He just goes by the, the true blue good old fashioned American hard ass. And um, I don't really necessarily agree with his perspective, but he... Uh, he, I mean, he's interesting, and he keeps submitting tapes to the show about his views, so I'll play them as long as he keeps submitting them, but that'll be at the end of the show. So let's get into this main event, shall we? Now, I'm really just going to be touching the surface. Like, I think there's a lot more I can dig into. So this might be part one, but um, I'm going to try to cover all the thoughts I have now, and I'll think about it more. I might add on to it. And I guess where I want to start is there's an increasing amount of cranks who are obsessed with the, the future. And just for transparency, I am going to be talking primarily focused on Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel's the real ideologue of the oligarchs, and Elon Musk is kind of the figurehead. And I mean, obviously, he's such a loser, a cowardly, sniveling loser of a figurehead. Excuse me, he's not a loser, he's smart. Oh my god, <laughs> this is my intern Napoleon again. He always butts in when I say something bad about Elon Musk. You know, this isn't the first time this episode I said something bad. Where were you at the beginning? I just got here, I was a little late. What? what? How were you late? Well, you didn't see me before in the show, did you? Well, no, but you're supposed to be here, and the fact that you're late, just leave for the day and quit interrupting my show. Fine, but you're a crappy boss, and Elon Musk is a great boss. Anyway, okay, so, um, bye-bye, Napoleon, dumbass. Um, so, yeah, the, the cranks nowadays are obsessed with the future, and... Peter Thiel is a really good example because he wants to live forever, and that's kind of... He literally wants immortality. That's why he gets, like, blood transfusions. He is literally a vampire. He is literally... He is capitalism. He is capital embodied. Like, if capital was God, then Peter Thiel would be the Jesus. And so what What it really is, is capital is the devil, and Peter Thiel is the Antichrist. So that's how I see it, at least. Like, the existence of Peter Thiel almost makes me want to be religious because it makes me think the Antichrist is real. But, I mean, I guess their obsession with the future is, I mean, this goes without saying, but it's totally hopeless, it's futile, it's just like an absolute way, obsolete way of thinking. These people need Buddhism because they need to let go of their attachments. But then again, we know what happens when Western capitalists uh, get into Buddhism. They basically make a bastardized, bastardized version uh, that basically makes it so capitalism is good. I guess Buddhism is never actually that anti-rich of a religion. Christianity is probably more anti-rich than Buddhism, but... But yeah, so I mean, besides billionaires and rich people looking to live forever, both preserved 
both physically and virtually. I mean, they wouldn't be opposed to, if you watch Westworld Season 2, and I don't know if you'll be able to online soon, because I know HBO Max is removing it, but in Westworld Season 2, they learn that the robots in the park basically have the souls of humans who've died put into the robots. Um, and I don't think that like Peter Thiel or his cronies would be that opposed to that, honestly. But what are some other ways that this sort of obsession with the future comes out? It comes out through this idea called effective altruism, which I might get into in a, in a later episode. This is kind of a trendy buzzword, and it's basically a f school of philosophy that exists for rich people to feel good about being rich. It emphasizes that they're like, oh, we should go towards a long-term benefit to humanity. A good example of what's called effective altruism is how Jeff Bezos said he would donate almost all of his money when he dies. But then again, it's like, he's doing that to relieve the tension he feels because on one hand he is a capitalist vampire he's the living dead but on the other hand he is an actual person and he doesn't know how to ameliorate that tension without just giving his money away because that's the easiest way for him to not feel guilty if he really wanted to alleviate his guilt, he would bankroll a communist revolution, but he he's too attached to his vampiric capitalist self to do that. Some other examples is um, there was a few weeks ago that article about the hipster eugenicist who basically tried to Gattaca a baby. If you've never seen Gattaca, it's a movie where it's like they in the future they discover the perfect dna sequence that will make someone superhuman but you have to be super rich to do it so there's like a family where there's one brother who is not genetically superhuman and one brother who is and they're basically trying to gattaca themselves um, by all of this like selective breeding and breeding for traits and using labs and shit. And then the, the last kind of idea about the obsession of the future I will talk about is, um, voluntary human extinction, which is becoming an increasingly popular kind of anti-natalist idea, which argues that um, human extinction would be the best thing for the planet. I don't have that cynical of a view. I I'm not exactly like so there's kind of two schools of thought when it comes to fighting global warming. The one school is the kind of Ted Kaczynski anarcho-primitives primitivist uh style like degrowth movement um and then the other side is kind of more pro-production and basically thinks like if we fund production and energy production and all this stuff more then we will invent the solutions to global warming and i think i kind of err on the side of the second side not because i think that it's necessarily better for global warming but that uh, degrowth and anarcho-primitivism is never going to exist. The material conditions that might lead it to exist are not there. It's a very utopian way of thinking. And that brings me to, like, to summarize all of these examples of ways that people are obsessed with the future... All of them are extremely utopian, and I'd like to remind you, one of the most important things we can take away from Marx and Marxism is that Marx was 
extremely anti-utopian and a lot of people might be surprised about that if you're not um, familiar with Marx because the narrative is that Marxists and communists are like the most utopian people and all that. The reason Marx was anti-utopian is the type of socialisms, like socialisms plural, that existed before Marxism were basically just like these guys imagining what their perfect society would be like and getting really specific with it too. Like there was some like French utopian who was like, the ideal society is building a apartment blocks with a very specific amount of units and very specific things on the ground floor and blah 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 it's like Marx came out and said this utopian thinking is worthless because it's not rooted in historical materialism historical materialism is the method of analyzing history to understand how the material reality shaped history and you can't really do that you can't do any sort of historical analysis and consequent um analysis about where our future is heading if you just have this idea in your head like oh well everything needs to be exactly how i want it because what you end up with is basically the system we already have that is how americans think they're like in my perfect society we'd everyone would have a gun or no one would have a gun in my perfect society like There'd be no abortions or abortions would be free. Like they have those, these kind of vision. Those aren't good examples, but they all have this vision of how society should be. That is like a big reason why the U.S. is so averse to class politics is everyone has their like pet visions of a utopia. And then what they end up doing is all voting for the lesser evil because that's all they can do. So that kind of, you know, so there's kind of two parts I want to focus on at first. So there's the people who are obsessed with the future. That is one ideology of the oligarchs. But then there's also the money ballification of everything in the sense that if you've seen the movie Moneyball, or if you follow baseball at all, you would know that in the early two thousand, early to mid two thousands, there was a revolution in the way that people analyze baseball, where it became much more stats heavy. For example, in the nineties and eighties, I guess maybe as far back as the seventies, I don't know. The main stat people cared about. Well, for one, batting average. But even in the 90s, people were like, batting average is kind of an imprecise. It doesn't tell you as much as you think it might. But the other is how many RBIs you get. That's runs batted in. How many runs you scored by getting a hit. And then in the 2000s, they basically realized we have all these other stats. We don't need to care about runs batting it runs batted in. We should care about the on base percentage, how many times they get on base, because walking is not a bad thing. They still get on base. And then we should analyze their slugging and all these all these other stats, right? And they can basically reduce the game of baseball to statistical analysis. And that happens because, you know, baseball is so, like, mechanical in a way where it's like, here is an incident. Someone's at bat. There's three, well, I guess four possibilities, maybe five. And then they calculate stats based on what happened. It's it's um, a little harder to do something like that with soccer footy, I should say. But y- you get the idea. And, you know, where this is really visible is actually in um, World of Warcraft. And I've talked about this on the show before because I played World of Warcraft back in the day. And I played World of Warcraft... 
World of Warcraft Classic when that was released. I didn't play either a ton. I've never been a raider or anything. I've never raided in WoW, but um, I've played enough to get how it works, right? And I can very confidently say that back in the day when WoW was original, people played entirely different and then they play in Classic. In Classic, it's all about min-maxing stats. If you put a talent, like one talent point into something that's suboptimal, like that might be enough for people to be like, what the hell is wrong with you? Whereas before, people would make all these crazy ass freaking builds and they just kind of go with it and another thing is it's like you might have five shaman and you're like let's do a dungeon with five shaman that's a very suboptimal way to do it but you could and it would be fun now it has to be like a perfect class composition you need your warrior your priest and then the three best damage dealers it, everything about the game is different because people have become a lot more obsessed with optimization st like statistical optimization and you know this is manifested in all types of ways in our society um there's a lot of people who completely discredit liberal arts now because there's no way to optimize them you have to use your brain and they think they're so brainy because they know numbers but like i know numbers too maybe not as much as you i don't know how to code and all that but like it's not that hard to figure out numbers. I'm sorry if that's like controversial, but you have to have a brain to understand the humanities. You just have to think like a computer to understand math. Um, yeah, again, that might be controversial, but that's my position. And I could talk more about how there's kind of been the money ballification uh, on other things, and this did actually come up in a recent podcast. But uh, this will be a thread that I want to continue following. I might make a segment that's called, like, the money ballification of society to track this trend. I guess the one other example I will give that's extremely um, apt is Nate Silver who, again, this is, I did talk about this, like, last episode a little bit as well. Just a little bit, but to elaborate, like, Nate Silver started as a baseball analysis guy and then became a political analysis guy. He basically took the tools that baseball analysis comes from and then imposed it on politics, even though it's kind of a really crappy lens for understanding politics. It's a great lens for understanding baseball. It's highly compatible with baseball. Another thing I would like to kind of transition to is... Um, I was listening to another podcast a couple weeks ago, Chapo Trap House, and they mentioned um, how the kind of ideology of the oligarchs, they, they refer to it as secular Calvinism. And I have heard this term before to describe like kind of a tech lord ideology. So I kind of want to talk about what Calvinism is and what the ideology of the oligarchs, is, how it's related to Calvinism. And um, I will say that like, I think there's truth to this, but the secular Calvinism is not the part of their ideology I would particularly um, focus on. But, you know, I just want to give you some context. Um, I did grow up kind of going to a Calvinist church. Um, it was a Presbyterian church, which is basically like Scottish Calvinism or Reformed. They mean the same thing. 
I never got told that this was like a Calvinist or Reformed church. And you don't really get told what it means in church, like the differences between the types of churches. That's a more academic focus of religion. That's not what they talk about in church. And so I will say that like growing up, some of the things they told me about Christianity, I later learned were things kind of more specific to Calvinism rather than general Christianity. So here are kind of the main, most surface level tenets of Calvinist thinking that I identify. The first is that a belief in total depravity, um, which is basically an extreme view of sin. Um, it basically says that there is nowhere and nothing, no one in this world that has not been not only touched by sin, but its pure existence is fused with sin. Sin is not something bad that you do. It is not something you think or whatever. It is the characteristic of our world. We live in a fallen world and everything is sinful. That's one belief. And I mean, that's kind of similar to Catholicism and Lutheranism, but they they both have less of a unifying view of sin they see it more as like something you do and that's kind of the more common view like you did a sin you cheated on your wife that's a sin another really common belief in calvinism is basically that the followers of christ are predetermined and god basically elects his followers before they were born um, and that's one people have a lot of trouble with. People don't like hearing that. And I remember hearing that in church as a kid, too, and being like, what about free will? I feel like I had the free will to decide stuff. And I feel like I have the free will to decide if I'm a Christian or not. And that's, they're like, well, that's how it feels, but it is predetermined. That's basically their position. And finally, this kind of ties into the total depravity element of like the view of sin. Calvinists emphasize more than any other denominations, especially Catholicism, that you don't get into heaven based on deeds. Deeds are a zero factor, a complete non-factor. They basically say that deeds won't help you. You just have to accept Jesus, and after that, good deeds are nice and all. Um, they are what you're expected to do to kind of show your Christliness, but they are not at all a part of your salvation. And um, the last thing I'll highlight is that a uh, kind of idiosyncratic or like an element of Calvinism that it might not seem like it fits especially because this belief in total depravity, but it, it actually is um, ties to environmentalism. Calvin was an environmentalist, and a lot of transcendentalists were Calvinists. And in many ways, it, it's also connected to the Enlightenment and Romanticism. So, it, you know, it's a big thing. Um, it's a... There's a lot of tentacles to both this idea but all of religious doctrine really and like i said you know before that chapo segment on secular calvinism i have heard the term but i still don't really know what it means and there's not a lot written about it online and the characteristics of calvinism that i described are pretty particular to a non-secular Christian worldview. So I can see how these ideas can be secularized. For one, let me use Peter Thiel as an example. 
he does absolutely believe in a fallen world. Um, he seems to have a belief in total depravity and he views common people with hatred. He also believes that he was basically elected to be the ideologue of the ruling class. Um, I really do think he believes he was predestined to be like an ubermensch. And I guess the final thing is the de-emphasis on deeds. I mean, that was an element that allowed capitalism to flourish. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess I can see the connection to a secular worldview, but I guess I'm just still not clear on what specifically secular Calvinism is. So, um, I guess the way I would think about it is, what is the ideology of the oligarchs? There's three schools of it, right? There's the economic dimension Schools is a bad word. Um, there's three dimensions to it. There's the economic di dimension, the political dimension, and the ideological dimension. So I guess what I'd say is the economic dimension is really easy. They are only interested in not only preserving capitalism, but accelerating it. Their political or e their political or state-based theory, um, I would say, is a view that they basically take Minch's Moldbug's mold views. Um, he's basically a techno-future monarchist. Um, and, I mean, he's kind of the worm tongue. He's the little finger of... Peter Thiel's ideology. He's the one in his ear, and he has a very clear vision of the state. And so, you know, they go hand in hand. The economic view is that capitalism needs to be accelerated. And the state political view is that our current system is failing, right? We all know that. Like, they know it better than we do. They can see further because they're commanding the capital. And so what they're trying to do is, as this system collapses, they're trying to position themselves as the most powerful force holding it together. They are the people who will be in power once it all ends. And then the ideology is, I guess, what I'm trying to unpack here because, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about it. There's some traits of it. One is the secular Calvinism that we kind of talked about, although I'm still iffy on it. The other is this sort of obsession with the future. Another is the money ballification of everything. But I guess the question is, those are a lot of big ideas. How do they synthesize together? And I'm just going to go into, I read this essay from a guy named David Peril. Peril spelled P-E-R-E-L-L of Peril.com. Um, he identifies himself as the writing guy. He writes a freaking ton on his blog, Peril.com, like I said, and... He writes about a lot of stuff. But I found this article that he wrote, and it's kind of a fawning article. Like, he is pro-Peter Thiel. But I found some quotes, both from the writer and directly from Peter Thiel in this article, that I would like to highlight. Because, um, you know, there's inf insightful stuff about it. So, here's what David Peril has to say. Quote... To understand Thiel's ideas, we need to begin with the person who influenced Peter Thiel more than any other writer, René Girard. René Girard was a French historian and literary critic. He's famous for mimetic theory, which forms the bedrock of Thiel's worldview. Thiel studied under Girard as an undergraduate at Stanford in the late 80s. Their relationships stretch beyond the walls of Palo Alto classrooms, blah, blah, blah. 
Mimetic theory rests on the assumption that all our cultural behaviors, beginning with the acquisition of language by children, are imitative. He sees the world as a theater of envy where, like mimes, we imitate other people's desires. His theory builds upon the kinds of books and people that modern people tend to ignore. Uh, you're gonna groan when he, when I tell you what books he says modern people tend to ignore. The Bible, classic fiction like Marcel Proust, and pr- playwrights like Shakespeare. Give me a break, nerd. People, <laughs> those are like some of the most popular writings in modern day, dumbass. Anyway, um, he continues. Mimetic conflict emerges when two people desire the same scarce resource. Like lions in a cage, we mirror our enemies, fight because of our sameness, and ascend status hierarchies instead of providing value for society. Only by observing others do we learn how and what to desire. Our mimetic nature is simultaneously our biggest strength and biggest weakness. So I guess that last paragraph is kind of the most interesting because it makes clear that this theory of mimetic desire, and I'll get more into that specifically later, this theory of mimetic desire that Teal holds is that if there's two groups and there's a scarce resource, they will fight over it. But what he doesn't realize is he's really just describing historical materialism. This is the exact thing that Marx is premised off of. But instead of focusing on the fact that there are two groups of people fighting over the same scarce resource, he turns it into this metaphysical mumbo-jumbo about, like, desire. And he gets a little more into this. Here's a direct quote from Peter Thiel. Gerard's ideas are a portal onto the past, onto human origins and our history. Again, talk about historical materialism much. It's a portal onto the present and onto the interpersonal dynamics of psychology. It's a portal onto the future in terms of where we are going to let these mimetic desires run amok and hit head towards apocalyptic violence. It has a sense of both danger and hope for the future as well. So, I mean, I, he's basically, like I said, he's basically describing the foundational tenets of historical materialism and then turning it into this metaphysical mumbo jumbo. And here's the last quote I'll read. I mean, I might read more, but this is the last one for a while. Um, This is how Teal implements Gerard's thinking into his thinking. Quote, Teal's companies are governed by Gerard's wisdom. Gerard observed that all desire comes from other people. When two people want the same scarce object, they fight. In response, the CEO of PayPal, Teal set up the company structure to eliminate competition between employees. PayPal overhauled the organization chart every three months. By repositioning people, the company avoided most conflicts before they even started. Employees were evaluated on one single criterion, and no two employees had the same one. They were responsible for one job, one metric, and one part of the business. Now, I will say, this is totally, in fact, total horseshit and shows how Peter Thiel thinks. Because what he did is just what capitalists have always done. He made it so their job is measuring one metric. That is no different than the dynamics of capitalism that Marx wrote literally hundreds of pages on. It's To use a common Marxist example, it is no different than the owner of a shoe factory. Before capitalism, there were craftsmen who only made shoes. They made the whole shoe. Then this was replaced by factories where it becomes much more efficient to have one person do the stitching, 
one person attached the heel, one person, I don't know, put in the laces. But Peter Thiel thinks he's so smart because he read René Girard. But he actually isn't operating from an ideological place with this at all. He's just acting as a capitalist. He just thinks he's so freaking smart because of it. Not to mention, like, you know, I read René Girard when I was in college as well. And here's the thing that people don't bring up very much. Girard's idea of mimetic desire was initially a literary theory. It did come up in Perils, David Perils' article. He mentioned that Girard's a literary critic, but Girard wrote a book called Deceit, Desire, and the Novel. It's entirely literary criticism, and it's his most well-known book. And from my experience, because I have a bachelor's degree in English and a bachelor's degree in philosophy, Girard was reoccurring in higher-level English classes. I was assigned to read him, especially in classes focused on literary theory. On the other hand, in philosophy classes, he never comes up at all. He is not particularly respected or thought as a more general theorist or a philosopher. And the reality is, he simply took his idea of mimetic desire from his literary analysis and ran with it. Because truthfully mimetic desire is present in a lot of literature and it fuels a lot of great conflicts in literature so like it is a prescient and smart literary theory but the problem with Girard is following that he basically shoehorned his theory of mimetic desire into everything regarding life philosophy psychology anthropology and it just seems really tenuous to me i don't put much stock in it because he he basically got one idea and then sees it everywhere and i guess just to demonstrate how relatively irrelevant gerard's ideas are to everyday life I mean, this isn't saying they're irrelevant, but to show the type of people reading his book, I looked up Deceit, Desire, and the Novel on Amazon, and the the recommended books include a book called, you may have heard of this, The Age of AI by Henry Kissinger, a book on poker math, and then several help self-help books, including one called Designing the Mind, The Principles of Psychotecture. And so because of this, it's very clear that a lot of people buying this book are like rise and grind types who saw that Peter Thiel likes Gerard. They typed in Rene Gerard in Amazon and bought the first book. They probably saw one of those lists on Twitter that are like book recommendations for aspiring tech workers. It's like the art of war, the Iliad, and then 8,000 shitty self-help books. I'm not saying go to the library and read the whole history, but it wouldn't kill you to know a little bit about it. And I guess there's a lot more places I could go with this. Like, I feel like I haven't really developed a thesis statement. I have a lot to say about it, but I don't know exactly how to wrap it up. It's a little hard. Um... And I guess that is in many ways kind of the goal of the show is to, one of the main goals of the show is to elucidate this um, ideology of the oligarchs. And I think I made a start in kind of putting a dent in it, but we have a long way to go. And um, that is the end of this segment. So before I do my sign off, I would like to play this clip from a true blue, good old fashioned American hard ass. Yeehaw, what's up, the society show? It's me, your real, true, blue American hard ass. 
Last time I was here, I told you how to be a real true blue American hard ass. Included some things like you gotta wear Punisher t-shirts. You gotta be deathly afraid of going to cities cause it'll give you a fright. And you gotta listen to at least eight hours of conservative talk radio a day. Well, I came with some better options for you to be a true hard ass. This'll supplement the other options. One thing, you gotta overdose on fentanyl just by thinking about it. You're not a true blue hard ass unless the mere thought of fentanyl in your bloodstream makes you OD, especially if you're a cop. But cops should be the only ones going into cities anyway because they're so scary. And another thing, you can't just listen to any conservative talk radio. You gotta listen to the real sissy boy conservatives like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson. They'll tell you your views are right even though they seem all sissy and wimpy like libtards. Cause when you're getting your info from some sissy boys, you know it's true cause they aren't the real true blue American hard ass like me. Those are just a couple rules for today. Thank you for letting me share. And with that, this has been The Society Show. My name is Christian. Thank you for listening to The Society Show. You can follow me on Twitter at ChristianIsCool. Is is spelled I-Z. Christian I-Z Cool. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Society underscore show. And you can write into the podcast at societyshowpodcast at gmail.com. And with that, thank you for listening to The Society Show.